I loved the movie Pay It Forward. I, I found myself in situations where even latching on to the idea became a way to transition from a negative moment into a positive moment. But what I really would like to do is explore this from a historical, spiritual, and biblical perspective, where this, the genesis of this idea is, and how we can embrace the part of it that's not humanistic, the, the part that is actually resonates with the Scriptures in our own lives. Um, it is a combination of two things, the idea of how we treat one another, and intentionality. And so, think about some of these quotes that came about before the time of Christ. In the Hindu religion, the sum of duty, do not to others which have done to thee what caused thee pain. The Buddhist religion, hurt not others that which pains yourself. A Jewish tradition, what is hateful to you do not do to your fellow man. The Baha'is, he should not wish for others that which he does not wish for himself. And uh, Pittacus of Lesbos says, do not do to thy neighbor that will not suffer from him. Socrates, uh, do not do unto others what angers you if done to you by others. And uh, there's a man by the name of Electics, Analectics, and it says, uh, it is perhaps, uh, do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire. Now, there's a story that's about 50 years before Christ, and it's about, uh, a, surrounds a Gentile approaching a rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who was very famous at that time. And the Gentile claimed that he would convert to Judaism if a Jew could teach him the entire law while standing on one foot. So, Rabbi Hillel, do not do to your fellow what you hate to have done to you. This is the whole law. The rest is explanation. Okay. Now, all of those quotes from a variety of different regions and religions and sources fall under what's called the, the Silva Rule. And then Jesus, as it's not a surprise, became a game changer. He actually said something, and he would have heard of uh, Hillel, there's no doubt about that. But he said something that turned everything that was just said on their head. He said, so in everything, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So what we're going to do today is explore this concept uh, spiritually, and we're going to look at possibility thinking, making gold plans, do to them with your words, do to them with your disposition, do to them with your actions. And so let's think about um, the idea of possibility thinking. We heard the silver rule, and now we've heard the gold rule. And I actually put in there the platinum rule. The platinum rule is the idea, you know, the gold rule is do to them what you would wish to be done to you, okay? The platinum rule is do to them what they would want to be done to themselves, okay? And that's actually what Jesus modeled. He modeled both the gold and the platinum in his teaching and in his example. We'll look at some of that. And then I want us to compare the rules. Here's the comparison between the silver, said by many bright people, and what Jesus said. This is a very significant comparison because then when you think about the comparison, you realize they weren't so bright at all. Because you can obey the silver rule by living on a deserted island. 
lying in a coma or being confined in a maximum security prison. You can do that by staying home and watching TV. Just don't do harm. There's nothing inspiring about that, right? There's nothing uplifting. There's nothing visionary and directive and hopeful. There's no change. Just imagine how the world would be had not Jesus changed the tune. You know, when we look at what John F. Kennedy said just over 50 years ago, it was certainly affected by the uplifting enterprise of Jesus' teachings. Because he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. But following a silver rule line of thought, he would have said, ask not that no one harms our country and ask how you won't harm it either. I mean, there's just nothing like lift in that, is there? You know, Jesus didn't come to change the world. But he did. We're not here to change the world, but if we can be the embodiment of what Jesus is teaching, then we'll have a captive audience to hear the gospel and to know about our God. And perhaps if we find ourselves less effective, maybe it's because we haven't been living out the golden rule with that intentionality of looking forward. And so I want to give us some ideas today, and I'm hoping that you'll be encouraged. The, uh, the thing for me that this has uh, produced, I remember a, a really kind of a, a dark moment in my life um, where something happened by great surprise. I went to a meeting which was for one purpose, and when I got there it was something else. Uh, people's tempers were raised, there was yelling, there was just, it was sad. And I go, this can happen to me and my church. And I had to schedule a trip. Trish and I were to go to visit some of our best friends in all the world. And we went to this uh, church to teach. And we didn't tell our best friends at all what had happened. Because the, the other parties were their friends too. And so we had, I, was, I felt very, very bottled up. Then the next week I was scheduled, just was already in a, our schedule to go on vacation. So I didn't want to sit around and be a better person on my vacation. Because you know how that can be. You just... You, just, you can get into that group think when you're away from the parties and you just go down this really dark trail. So you know what I decided? I'm going to live out the rest of my life so that no one else anywhere near me will go through that experience. It would be embarrassing for that to happen anywhere near my midst. I am going to be the game changer. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be the embodiment of problem solving around Christians. And so... Uh, if I didn't make that decision, I w- it could have taken me out spiritually. To this moment, I am living out that decision of that week to pay it forward. And paying it forward is a very spiritually resonating idea that is rooted in Scripture, as we're going to see. Think of the possibilities and how we can embrace this concept. We can. Uh, what are the needs of the people around us? Just think about it. Are there unmet needs? You know, sometimes there's really an unmet need that we could easily meet. And we would take nothing from us to do it, right? If we just think about it. Or about, hey, brother or sister, what can I pray for you for? And uh, what is the need of volunteers? I mean, there's always volunteers needed in the church, right? Ever feel sad? Volunteer. 
Absolutely. Volunteer. And I was a, an elder in the church one time, and, and I just was feeling in a really bad place. I just said to the Kingdom Kids people, hey, can I serve in Kingdom Kids for a month? You know, just change my tune. Kids will do that to you. You know, and, and so I just want us to think about that. So we're going to talk about now making plans, making gold plans. The quote up on the screen is, do something good for someone so that they, can, they can't do for themselves, then that person will also pay it forward. That was on the chalkboard in the movie. So let's make gold plans thinking about something somebody can't do that you can do for them. Every single time that I have to thin out my house of all the books that we have, and I go to church with big boxes of books, it's like a feverish uh, festivity around these tables. I've taken up to four or 500 books at a time. And, uh, and then there's none ever left, not even one. And these are hardbound books, good books, some books I've never read. I'm not trying to get a penny. I just want to, and just to watch the joy of people walking out in the parking lot with all these books in their hands, you know, it, it is something that I can do for them. Um, Hebrews 10.24 gives us a thought. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on. That's that intentionality. Let's make a plan. Let's consider how we can do it. Ever feeling like, you know, in a, in a grieving moment and just thinking about yourself? And, you know, grief is not selfish. Grief is not selfish. We should never short-circuit grief or let somebody else tell us what our grief ought to be like. But one of the things that helps grief is community and connectivity and service. And uh, I love that passage. Let's consider how we may do it. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, in that passage says, uh, And humility, value others above yourself, not looking for your own interests, but for the interests of others. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, not one, No one should seek their own good, but for the good of others. But, you know, if everybody does that, you know what happens? Good is going to come our way. You know, if I randomly just decide to be encouraging and thoughtful and giving to somebody, I might unintentionally, accidentally get them at just the right time. God may be using me because I've made myself available to the Holy Spirit to be prompted to be the the messenger, the vehicle of His love and affection. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, uh, you know, something about my functionality, uh, how I've served in the church or in mediation or whatever, in a very positive way and say, I know you probably hear this all the time, but what you just did there, that was really good. Thank you. And, and I'll, sometimes I'll say, you know what? I do like to hear that. <laughs> I do need it. I'm, I'm just like everybody else, you know. Just, you know, I sweat. I'm, you know, I get sick. I'm just like everybody else. You know, this height up here doesn't mean anything. I belong down there. And uh, we, me like you, we all need encouragement. And so, think about this. Plan on uh, thinking about the deprived or the homeless. We have all sorts of different, we have a different homeless culture here than we do in Chicago. It's a very, I mean, I haven't quite figured it out, but there's a lot of homeless in Santa Monica. And uh, some of them uh, dress sharp. Of course, you can be homeless year-round a lot easier here. I think that's probably the big difference, you know. 
And a lot of people with backpacks, and you can't tell whether they're on the, on the beach or whether they're just tourists or whatever. You just can't tell. But in, in my neighborhood, we have a lot of homeless that hang around in front of a Walgreens and in a park. And when I have intentionality and I remember, you know, I've got a whole bunch of change here, uh, and I decide to, you know, help somebody out, or a couple of times I've gone out with uh, some, some sort of food item, you can tell when somebody, every once in a while, somebody like, no, but I want your money, because, you know, the liquor store is right down the street, okay? Okay. Some people are like, no, I want your money, but other people are like, uh, you know, there's a 7-Eleven there. Are you going to buy me a sandwich? You know it's the sandwich that they want. It's the food. They're hungry. And the gratitude that they feel, you know. And, there's, and you know what? Five bucks is nothing. It's actually probably nothing to a lot of, maybe even college students. Maybe even. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. We spend three bucks at Starbucks just to get a, you know, right? Okay. Okay. I'm not trying to convict. Um, but anyway, it's, it's the idea of let's make plans. How are we going to reach the masses? We can't do something unless we make plans, unless we think about it. That's one of the great things about the story. Everybody in the story and paying forward had an issue in their life they were dealing with. The boy, the mom, and the teacher. I mean, they had stuff. And that's, that's us. But we can be part of something much bigger than ourselves that blesses the world around us and changes the temperature just because we practice some of these verses. Um, I put up there doing a follow-up study for something, somebody. You know, a lot of people become Christians, and then uh, it's hard to get the follow-up studies ever to happen. You know, I think there's like ten follow-up studies in most churches, how to pray, read your Bible, the kingdom, all these different studies. In my experience as a, as a minister for 26 years, as a Christian for like 33, that uh, nobody ever gets ten follow-up studies. Okay. At least in my world, it doesn't happen. It peters out after the third or somewhere around the sixth. It just doesn't happen. And we wanted those people to be studying the Bible to become a Christian. And then we turn our enthusiasm to the next prospect. But some of the follow-up studies I had in 1981 are still with me. And one of the ways we could do this is perhaps you have a particular follow-up study you're good at. So maybe Mark Shaw is the guy to do the follow-up study on the kingdom of God. Okay. So every time somebody's baptized, you know, Mark can be the guy. Hey, when you're ready, I'm there for that. And he has a list of all the people baptized, and he does the kingdom of God. Actually, that's the study that I do in Chicago, in our Chicago Ministry Center. Covering the whole geography of our ministry center, I have, somebody says, hey, uh, this guy's not doing so well. Oh, we'll do a kingdom study. And I love going into the book of Daniel and the Gospels, and I have my own version of it. It is fun! And I like to to see the impact of somebody go, wow. Right? We can do that. You can wow somebody with the best thing you've learned in the Bible. Let's make plans. Let's think about how we can encourage one another. Feeding college students, right? Seriously. You know, maybe, uh, maybe once a month or once every six weeks, you and your household open it up. You talk to Stuart nationally and say, hey, can you give us ten people? And we'd love to do it in advance. You make a plan. I was 21, 22 years old when I became a Christian, 
And I was baptized on the last day of July of 1981. And on that Sunday after church, I went over to the home of an, an older couple. They're probably only in their 30s, but they were old in my view, you know. <laughs> so I went to the home of this older couple. And uh, they did something every Sunday. And they had food and they had, you know, all sorts of stuff. Chili and chips is all I needed, you know. Uh, as a young single guy. And it was awesome. It was fantastic. It was great. And I felt like family. And that's one of the ways we're going to integrate our ministries better, is when we're in each other's homes and each other's lives. But for me, that was so solidifying. Those relationships with older people. And, you know, I needed a lot of attention back then. I still need a lot of attention now, but my wife gives it to me, you know. Uh, but I needed attention. I, I was one of those people that I would never, ever, ever wear a suit. I made it a life's decision. I would never wear a suit. It doesn't make sense. And especially a tie. Why would you wear cloth around your neck? And I, I got a really great engineering job wearing corduroys and a sweater. I didn't have to dress up or anything. And so I, I thought I could live my life never wearing one at all, ever. Ever! Okay. That's where I was at. And then uh, this elder came up to me, and uh, he's, he said, could you do the uh, communion talk next Sunday? First time I'd ever speak for the church. Probably six, eight months old as a Christian. He said, but we would need you to wear a suit and tie. I was dying on the inside. Dying. <laughs> and so I did it. And uh, I don't have any, any of those same feelings anymore. I don't mind wearing a tie. I don't mind wearing a suit. But I was a project. There's a lot of ways that I was a project. And uh, I was a kind of a country bumpkin from southern Ohio. And I had been part of Jeep groups, gangs. I had long hair. I did not look unkempt. I just, you know, I was just rough. Okay. And praise God that Trisha could see through all that uh, something later. But um, you know who ha impacted me? Older people in this mainline church that had a campus ministry that Marty Fuquay led. And to this day, I'm still grateful for some of the, the guidance that I got. So, students, maybe you can get some guidance after you're fed. Okay? It'll be great. So, anyway. Do to them with your words. I want to look at the story in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned to her turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter. Wow. Then your faith has healed you. And at that moment, the woman was healed. Take heart, daughter. The power of words are, I don't think we even can fathom sometimes the power of our words to bless what we can do with our words, we might never be able to do with our deeds. We might never be able to do by a service, uh, offering to paint their house. Or, but sometimes it's very 
specific words can make all the difference. In the Old Testament, there's this concept of the blessing. And we see it with the story of Jacob and Esau. And some of it has to do with birthright and rank. But you see the power of one person's influence on another in that story. It really messed up. The, the dysfunction of that really sh- shows how much is it messes up people's lives when it's not managed properly. The power of that story, you can imagine how so much damage could have been handled better if the blessing process was improved. If somebody says to a person who has uh, failed in some way in their spiritual life, and you know, let's say they failed in a role, they failed as a worship leader. They failed in a ministry position. Um, and they ended up being unemployed or in a different role and felt useless. And somebody said to them, you know, some of the best worships I've ever had was when you were leading it. Don't give up. It'll come back one day. Hold on to your dream. Or some of the best sermons I had. That one sermon back in 1999 that you did, Changed my life. I was on the precipice of about ready to fall away. God used you in a special way. Whatever it is, whatever it is that we, you know, we have the words. Sometimes people just need to know how we feel about them. I feel close to you. I feel like I can trust you with my life. You mean a lot to me. Those kinds of words can go really, really far. If somebody's struggling with their self-esteem, and this woman who had this infirmity probably was, you know, a bit sheepish, you know, but I can touch his cloak. Jesus knew what to do. That's why I call this one the platinum roll. He didn't, if Jesus was hungry, he wouldn't have said, hey, a woman, here's some food. You, You don't. Not all needs are met the same way. He customized his response to her plight, not based on what maybe he would like at that moment, but what she needed. And if we could pay real close attention to the lives of people in the workplace, at school, on our campuses, if we could pay close attention to people in the church, and our families, what is needed with them right now? And just being thoughtful. Our words, and we pick the right words. Sometimes it can be just a significant change in their life. And you know, one of the ways that we can maybe get this conviction is maybe we have a need. I remember um, a a, uh, really unbelievable vacation that Trish and I took with a whole bunch of other disciples years ago. It was such an incredible adventure that it is permanently imprinted. And, and our whole family, uh, uh, we'll never forget it the rest of our lives. And a bunch of friends all went, a whole bunch. And then, uh, years later, a smaller group went out and did the same thing, except didn't open it up to the rest of us. And I felt so sad. I felt excluded. Now, it's not fair to that memory for me to present it that way because this group had been doing it for years. And one particular year, they opened up to a lot of people. But this particular event, they came from a different country, all just regrouped the original group. And we found out about it inadvertently. And we were not really excluded from an exclusive spirit. 
but it felt that way. I would not have wanted to have seen a picture of it on Facebook. It was that awesome in the beginning. So it's real tempting to think, well, we never really were friends. Okay. Is that we just to grab our emotions, and when we see something on Facebook, let's not go to the worst place. When we hear about something, let's not go to the worst place. I think you know what I'm saying. Okay? But for the future purposes, we can be mindful of something we might do that might send mixed signals, and that we can make sure people feel included. We can bless. Does that make sense? A whole bunch of verses here. Uh, Proverbs 10.11, the mouth of the righteous is the fountain of life. 10.20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Luke 6.45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And it closes out with, for out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. Uh, Ephesians 4.29, but only, say only what's helpful for building each other up according to their needs. Do to them with our words. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another as long as it is called today. Our blessings, our expressions of value, and our truthful commendation. Brother, you're really good at this. Where would we be without you? That's what we can do with our words. Okay, next, be, be with them according to uh, our disposition. Luke chapter 15, if you could turn with me to the story of the prodigal son. Where I'm going to bank on the fact that you already know this story real well. <laughs> and just take a little excerpt. If you don't, I pity you. Um, when I became a Christian, before I started studying the Bible, this is the only story I'd ever read in the Bible. And I was a lay minister that gave ashes on Ash Sunday and delivered communion in my church. And I had never read the Bible. And so, uh, but I knew this story. Everybody knows this story. It's the parable of the prodigal son who really messes up, takes the father's inheritance, you know, really falls off the cliff. He came to his senses, verse 17, and he makes a decision how he's going to tell his father, I'm no longer going to be worthy to call your son, just let me be a hired hand. While he was still a long way off in verse 20. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you, and no longer will be worthy to call him your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And It just went awesome. This is just a story, a parable that is communicating a disposition that the father has to a returning son. If somebody has hurt you, and they make the slightest gesture of recognition of that, the last thing we should ever do is expect them to grovel. Right? We should just not even leave that as a possibility. Take that off the table. First John 4.20, paraphrase, if you say you love God, then you've got to love the ones you're with. Okay? That's truly a paraphrase. <laughs> Okay, it's love with our disposition. Let, us, let that be true about us, okay? Love, mercy, and grace. Let that be our disposition. If somebody just comes to us and just starts to say, that thing that I did to you, that should be like, oh, you recognize it. Now let them finish their thoughts and whatever. 
I don't want to be a Siskel and Eberger of somebody's apologies. You know what I'm talking about that. Thumbs up, thumbs down. If I see their disposition change and their countenance and that they're like working through things and that we, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't cases we need to go further with it to see if they've accepted responsibility for uh, pulverizing a child or something like that, you know. But I'm talking about, you know, in the human personal interactions, let's be full of love, mercy, being able to overlook a lot of things. Grace is the idea of giving. It's a gift. Finding ways to uh, honor or uh, encourage or bless or whatever. Lastly, do to them with your actions. First John chapter 3, verse 18 Do you think we can change the world with this, with this concept here? First John chapter 3, verse 18, and I... Oh, there it is. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. There is a place for the words and speech we've already covered. Powerful. But sometimes that's where people let it drop. And that's where we need to figure out, hey, you know what we can do? We can help each other. Sometimes people want something that we don't want to deliver. One time, Trisha uh, wanted for her birthday. I don't remember how it all went, or maybe it was our anniversary, but she wanted pretty much a very large area painted. And I hate painting. But when I said, hey, I'll do that, it was such an encouragement to her. And then it changed my view about painting. Oh, if I can get that out of painting, then that's her love language. Acts of service. You know that book, Love Languages? Okay. That's one of her things. Some people want words. That's me. Say something nice about me. Go ahead. You can do it right now if you want. <laughs> Who's going to go first? Let's get total silence and just start one at a time. So, just think about that. It's just so powerful to learn somebody's love language. And in, in the case of somebody where it's just doing something for them. But the probably the most powerful story where this comes out is in Luke chapter 10. Again, a parable where Jesus is conveying the platinum rule. And this, this is a, the most powerful parable probably in the history of the human race after the prodigal son because... It's, it's in the human consciousness, even for people that are not religious. In the 1960s, when a woman by the name of Kitty Genesifi was murdered with 38 witnesses hearing or seeing the whole thing for a period of just under an hour, none of them calling the police, none going to the scene, none protecting her, it was called the Bad Samaritan Syndrome. There was a whole group that was put together to figure out what had gone dark in New York that allow that could happen. Google it. It's all over the place. And New York changed their mentality about what it means to be civilization, a civil society, based on amplifying that story to say that is unacceptable. Based on the passage here in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, um, verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went and bandaged, went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any expenses uh, you may have incurred. Wow. With your actions. So powerful, huh? And then, here's a way we can do this. What are the things that people want? Cleaning? Moving? Moving somebody is not fun, is it? It is not fun. I have helped move a lot of people, and a lot of people have helped move me. What goes around comes around, you know, and every once in a while, as you get older, you say, hey, can't you just hire somebody else out to do that, you know? But there are some people that are too poor to do that, and they are really in a needy situation. And the first week of April, I'm going to be in Florida helping my daughter move. But the way that I have come to helping somebody move is the challenge of seeing if I can get the most amount of things packed in a truck. You know, it's like a puzzle. I can get it in there. I know I can. You know, that sort of thing. Um, Babysitting. Okay? That's a big area that we can help people. Uh, Being in the background to help people through their deaths and their family, their funerals and funeral preparation. That's a huge way to meet a lot of needs. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We can pay it forward. Pay Pay forward with gold and platinum. This is to be the West Side Ministry. That we would be like Jesus treating people positively like we would want to be treated, but with a catch. We're actually going to be mindful to learn about people's needs. So it is the platinum rule that we're motivated by. We're thinking about the needs that people have, and we want to do it with intentionality. And the goal here is that we make plans so that this becomes our legacy, who we are. We are resilient. We are strong because these are the kind of people that we have chosen to be in just one little verse from Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which is upgraded the world on how to treat one another. Let it be the embodiment of us with each other and with the world around us. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, apply passages that we sometimes take for granted, but to put a lot of attention on them, to zero in on them for our lives. Uh, Father, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about something I've wanted to talk about, and uh, I do appreciate in my own life. Thank you for the people that have given to me, seen me at times when I've needed to be encouraged, pulled me in, have said the right things, have met a need through disposition, actions, or words, the people that you've put in my life, that have, for all the good that's ever come out of my life, Father, I know I'm indebted to you and the people that you have sent my way that have invested in me. Father, may we be a people that blesses one another, that forgives swiftly, that finds ways to overlook an offense, and they are able to embrace those that, uh, that need to be embraced because we are your messengers. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.